Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. If you want to learn how to optimize your workouts and understand how to get in peak shape as a vegan, this conversation is for you. Today, I'm talking to the power couple, Danny Taylor and Giacomo Marchese. They are vegan badasses and founders of the vegan bodybuilding platform, veganproteins.com, as well as plantbuilt.com, a nonprofit organization of strength-based athletes who compete to raise awareness for veganism and to support animal rescues. Today, we're taking a deep dive into all aspects of optimizing physical and mental performance in order to compete at the top of your game as an athlete and human being. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Danny and Giacomo, welcome to the Superhumanize podcast. I am truly so excited to have both of you here with me today. Thank you for making time. Thank you so much for having us. We're really excited to be here. It's an honor. And you know what I'd love to do? I'd love to lay out to the audience, I'll give them a little bit of a basic background about a few both. You both had very interesting lives. What, what I want to delve into a little bit later, Danny, especially really an eclectic, fascinating, beautiful background that's unusual. But with regards to what you both are really well known for and the area where you truly move a needle is bodybuilding. And you are both vegan bodybuilders. What is each of your bodybuilding background? Mine's a little longer and I'll try to keep it short. So long story short, I wanted to be more active to play tennis in high school. And my conductor, I was a percussionist at the time, was a champion bodybuilder. And he took me under his wing when our gym opened up for the very first time at this high school. And that's how I got into it. It stuck in my adult years after I graduated college with a degree in finance and decided this wasn't what I wanted to do. And the jobs were weird after 9-11 in New York City, which is where I grew up. So I got into training at local like New York Sport Club and Bally's and just whatever, Jacqueline type, typical commercial fitness places. And I decided to do a bodybuilding competition because I was further getting into it. Probably in hindsight, at the time, I didn't know I was influenced by the conductor. At that point, after competing, I stuck with it. And I'll share more of that story later. But that is, those are the roots of my bodybuilding story. So that was what, like 20 years ago? It's been about that yeah. long, probably longer. <laughs> I'm old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's been in it for a while. Um, I didn't even get into, I became interested in bodybuilding as a topic, I would say in about 2008, after 
I went through this whole big transformation of losing a tremendous amount of weight and changing my lifestyle entirely. And then I got interested in bodybuilding at that time. And I found veganbodybuilding.com, which is actually Robert Cheek's website, who I know was on here not too long ago. And back then it was a forum of people, several thousand other vegans in 2008, trying to figure out how to be the best bodybuilders they could. And when there wasn't like a whole lot of information about it out yet. So we were all learning from each other. And yeah, that was in 2008. And I started coaching people like this became a huge passion of mine for years. And I started coaching people in 2012. And then I did my own competition for the first time in 2014 and been competing and coaching ever since. But it's a little unusual to be coaching bodybuilders before you actually become a competitive bodybuilder yourself. So that's a little bit backwards, but that's how it went for me. And as a testimony to your dedication and also perseverance, Danny, because uh, you mentioned that you lost a tremendous amount of weight, you really went through a transformation. Can you give us some data there? What was actually the weight? And how long did it take you to actually to get to the point where you were satisfied and happy with what you achieved? Yeah. So I, I grew up very overweight. My family, we didn't have a lot of money. Many of the people in my family were overweight or obese. So I just thought, Hey, I'm overweight. I'm obese. This is our genetics. It is what it is. I'm going to carry on with my life. I became vegetarian when I was eight, but still ate a lot of dairy and eggs and stuff. And by the time I was 16, I was 210 pounds, which is technically obese. And then I wrote a research paper about vegetarianism in, my, in high school. And I stumbled across this concept of veganism something I had never heard of before. I had no idea about it. And it explained the connections between the dairy and egg industry and the meat industry that I already didn't want anything to do with. And I just went vegan overnight for ethical reasons only. And then a few months later, I went to the doctor for a checkup and they have you stand on the scale and they were like, you're down 30 pounds. And I was like, what? <laughs> Because I wasn't doing anything particularly healthy. I had just stopped eating dairy and eggs. And a light bulb went off. Maybe this isn't my genetics. Maybe I can actually do something about this. And then I actually started learning about nutrition. I started going to the gym. And I would say probably about 15 months or so, I lost 90 pounds um, total. And I got down to 100 and 120, 125 pounds. And I realized I actually don't love how this looks. Like I thought it was going to look a certain way in my mind. And it didn't, which is super, super common for big weight loss stories. And that's when I decided, like, I wanted to build some muscle. I wanted to try to change the way I looked and felt. And that kind of shoehorned me into the fitness community and the bodybuilding community. Outstanding. And obviously, I have not been in your shoes. I never lost a lot of weight. I, however, can really relate to the, I'm conjecturing here, but the desire to have a strong and body with beautiful defined muscles. That's also something that I admire in, in, in people who have the dedication to achieve that. That's also something I want for myself. I've always been quite lean, but I really like that tone physique. So that's also why I've been especially excited to talk to you guys. Uh, I'm 44 now, I'm turning 45 next March, and I have uh, made the decision to not just dabble a bit, but really to dive a little deeper into the bodybuilding, not just for how you can sculpt 
your body, but also what it does to your mind, the effects it has on other areas of your life. And I want to talk about that just a little while as well. What really interests me though, and I think what also a lot of people in the audience would like to know from both of you is how has being vegan benefited you each the most? We already heard a little bit about that from you, Danny. Are there other aspects? And of course, Giacomo, how has being vegan benefited you? Veganism has benefited me in a way that I cannot put into words. It's given me the chance to remove myself from what I do and why I continue to do it. And in one word to sum it up, it's compassion. And that has, what compassion means for me personally is that it has evolved and changed over the years. And it started with nutrition and health And it wasn't even about my health per se, although that was a side benefit. It was leading by example, realizing I can't help my girlfriend's uh, mother recover from, from reverse her heart disease if I can't get her past Western medicine and say, how is this going to benefit you? I can't, I can't help my dad reverse his cancer. And at the end of it, you can't really help other people. You can only do your best to shine a light and be a good example for others. So it started with nutrition, but then it led to the environmental reasons. And it also led to the making compassionate choices for your human family and for other species as well. And that's what brought me to activism and deciding to continue to double and triple down on taking risks in my life and making this my career path and my personal path, which doesn't get any less scary over time, but I feel like it's worth it. Yeah. I don't, I think obviously I mentioned the, the weight loss thing, but there were other little things also. Like when I was a kid, I always had strep throats and I always had ear infections and I haven't had one of either. I haven't had either of that in 20 years since I went vegan. Um, but on top, I just feel like veganism was a pathway for me to completely transform everything about who I am and what I do and what I stand for. So although it seems like, oh, you just stopped eating dairy and eggs, what's the big deal? Like it was really one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. I agree with you wholeheartedly. <laughs> for me, it's been since 2007 going vegetarian first and then going vegan was a logical consequence or AVAP as vegan as possible as my own philosophy goes. But The transformation that you speak about, Danny, I also find so profound. It's not only health-wise. Like you, I also used to suffer from tons of stuff that I just thought was normal. Constant bladder infections, getting cold or flu three, four times a year, mood swings, brain fog, all kinds of stuff that I just thought, okay, this is just how life is. And then once I switched and changed my diet, I was like, oh my goodness. And I couldn't help but think how many... People think that the way their life is with certain aches and pains physically, but also emotionally, spiritually is normal. And that solution is actually really right in front of us, what we put on our plates. And also what you said, Giacomo, everything is interconnected, whether we care about the health of our own, our loved ones, the health of the human family, the health of the planet, social justice animal welfare, it is all connected. We have so much power with our dollars, what we buy to put on our plates. And since you are really very well regarded in what you have now taken as being leaders in this niche, what do you see as the main difference between 
vegan bodybuilding and conventional bodybuilding? Hmm. That's a really good question, actually. I think that this is just my observation. This is probably not true for everybody. But I think that the biggest difference that I've seen is that because there is this stereotype that you can't build muscle as a vegan. So for many years, we've heard, oh, vegan bodybuilder, isn't that an oxymoron? I can't tell you how many times we've heard that. Because there's this stereotype, I feel like the people who get into bodybuilding as vegans, they feel like they have something to prove more than just, oh, look how good I can look, which is you can boil bodybuilding down a little bit to like, it's a muscle beauty pageant, at least the competition itself. And I think that for a lot of most bodybuilders who are not vegan, that is what they're trying to do. They're trying to look their best for themselves in this sport. But when you're vegan, yes, you want those things too, but also you want to help try to change some people's minds about how maybe they really do. People truly believe you can't get enough protein on a plant-based diet to build muscle. And we're there showing like, Hey, look, we can hang. We, we totally fit on this stage. We belong. And they're like, wow, how did you do that? And then there's an opening to talk about it. And there's an opening to communicate and educate how you can do that. But I think that having a reason that's a little bit bigger than just yourself to want to be good at what you're doing, it gives you a bit of an edge over other people who might not have those kinds of reasons. Absolutely. Yes. And uh, you, both of you, you may know or know off uh, as a dear friend and his reason for going vegan was also ethical compassion. Patrick Baboumian, he's a strong man, lovely human being, was also a guest on the podcast here. And that's also what he says and what I feel deep down inside as well is that when you have a purpose, when you have a mission, it truly gives you an edge because so much of your core self is invested in whatever you want to achieve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally believe like you need to have some intrinsic motivation in order to be successful at reaching these really big, often painful goals. These are not easy. Like Patrick is a strong man. That is not a painless thing to achieve. That's a lot of blood, sweat and tears goes into that. You need to have a really good reason. Otherwise, it's very easy to convince yourself to stop. Yeah. And having a really good reason is something that will fuel you, fuel your performance and your progress. And as vegan athletes, what are your strengths and what do you think is, or what have you experienced as your biggest challenge? There are pretty obvious strengths that may not be obvious to the listeners here, but the one easy thing about it is that you just tend to make better choices when it comes to what's on your plate. You're going to more likely than not be getting your nutrition, meaning your vitamins, your minerals, your antioxidants, the things that help you recover better, the things that help you perform better. You're going to be getting those most likely from plants. So not to say that you are going to make those choices. You may stick to non-nutrient dense plant-based foods like bread and pasta or whatever, but chances are you're going to wind up gravitating toward things that make you feel good over time, especially when your goal is to be a better athlete. So we don't shame people for their food choices. And unfortunately, I think there's a lot of that dietary dogma that comes from the vegan community for lack. I just, it's not the whole community, but it's the loud voices Mm -hmm. that 
come there for a solution and don't find it or have certain beliefs or restrictions that they put on themselves and that they, and that can trigger others into making those same decisions or enable them to do what they're doing. But the reality of it is that everyone finds their way and their balance, even high performing athletes. And chances are that over time, you're going to wind up making unhealthier choices as, and I think it's especially helpful when we encourage people to be comfortable with eating how they eat. So I, we do a lot of work when it comes to focusing on our clients' menus and how they feel about food in general. And you'd be surprised how many people have a hard time with this and it's lasted for years. Mm. And what specifically do they have a hard time with? Specifically, they have a hard time with feeling like they're being judged for how they're eating or that they need to eat a certain way to be healthy. And it's hard for me because it's such an inclusive environment and you want to lift up the community. You'd be surprised at how many people put one face out there because it sells or because it's what they feel proud of or what they think is necessary for them in the future. And then you turn around and they're like, yeah, I eat potato chips, but don't tell anyone. It's like, and that's just, that stuff doesn't anger me as much as it just, it worries me because if you feel like that, Imagine how other people feel when you are you have a, a platform and a loud voice. I think that what he's saying is people, they really do struggle with this idea that if they're not perfect all of the time, that they're failing somehow. And like, I would ask, what is perfect? First of all, that's a very difficult thing to define. It's going to be different from person to person. There are uh, people in the community who put out messages that they eat this particular way, I, I could make up anything. I could say 100% raw, organic all of the time, when in reality, they're human just like anybody else is human and sometimes don't make great choices. Um, but for a, a person who just wants to change their life or improve their life, they feel like if they can't live up to that standard, that they're not going to reach their goals. They feel bad. Their self-worth decreases. And that is something that we work with people a lot about is it's about meeting them where they are at and improving from there. It's not about being perfect overnight because nobody can do that. That's outstanding because one of the, the core tenet of veganism is compassion. And I think we also need to extend that uh, to others, to ourselves as well. And that's where the root of my personal philosophy, ABAP, as vegan as possible, comes from. Because I've noticed that when people feel something is not completely insurmountable or when, okay, okay, they had a piece of cheesecake at their auntie's birthday. The auntie would have been sad otherwise. And it's like, it's all right. Don't scrap the entire mission. We've been plant-based now for the last six months or even a year or four weeks, wherever you're at, just jump back on the green wagon the next day. It's all right. You're human. It doesn't mean you're a failure. Just do the best that you can and stick to the green thread, as I like to call it. And once time passes, people are going to gravitate more and more to make these healthier choices and transition from if in the beginning they were like what you can call a junk food vegan, tasty replacement, meat replacement products to somebody who eats whole foods, or if they had a hard time going completely plant-based, but they were allowed to give themselves this, okay, on Sunday, I can have a meal of my choice that has some whatever animal product in it, but it'll help them overall to stick to where they really want to get. I think that for me is an important thing. Instead of pointing the finger at someone, reach out the hand and help them, pick them up where they're at. So yeah, I totally 100% agree with you. Yes, in a perfect world, it would be wonderful if everybody woke up tomorrow and was 
completely vegan. That would be super cool. But the fact that that's not going to happen. And now that I'm not 16 anymore, I realize that's not going to happen. And now I do think that every time someone chooses a meal that is plant-based, that goes in the plus column. And we just need to keep thinking about all of those things going in the plus column. And eventually people, they can get really far along that spectrum. A lot of people go all the way and it's all great. And we just want to be there to help people move along that line. I like that you call it the green thread. I like that. We want to help people move along that green thread. And I don't think that shaming people for the choices that they make, I just don't think it's helpful for anything. I don't think it's helpful for them. I don't think it's helpful for the movement or the environment or the animals or anything. And it certainly doesn't make vegans look any better to be that preachy, judgy, angry vegan. Mm -hmm. So it's something that we really try to steer clear from. I feel exactly the same way. And I'm curious for both of you, what is the most common question or comment that people have when they find out you're vegan athletes and how do you respond? Wait, ready? Three, two, one. Where, Where do, do you get your protein? protein? Yeah. <laughs> still, still that, yeah. Still that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's still that we when we started our company back in 2008 that was our slogan vegan proteins where do you get your protein and it was really funny in 2008 in 2021 it's a little bit less funny <laughs> but it's it's still the number one question we get so it's it, every at least a few times a week mm-hmm. Amazing. that's still the question there's a lot of different ways. i usually let people know that I eat more protein that I guarantee I eat more protein than they think I eat. I might eat more protein than they eat. And then I talk about some of the ways that I'm able to do that. I talk about some of the plant-based sources that are really high in protein that we incorporate on a regular basis. Sometimes people are asking just to be snarky. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the answer might be a little bit different. If someone's like, oh yeah, but where do you get your protein? I'll say, well, what amino acid are you worried that I'm not getting enough of? And they have, they don't know because they didn't, because they don't know anything about protein. That's the mm-hmm. point. It's just something where like they're conditioned to ask, but I always end up giving a real answer. Cause I, again, trying to not be that sure. judgy, angry vegan, but it's kind of hard to, to avoid saying that one once Sometimes. in a while. <laughs> yeah. And that's okay too. We're allowed mm-hmm. to have emotions and something. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. I get a blood panel, like a serious blood panel, everything done probably definitely two times a year, sometimes three. And I'm always on the upper end of the protein. Definitely not deficient in anything. It's and I'm a blood type O negative. Supposedly, if you follow the blood type diet, I'm the type of person who should be eating meat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I'm fine. Yeah, we do the same thing. We get our blood done at least once a year, a full panel and everything. And I've been vegan for 20 years now. And uh, the old, I've had one blood test come back with a low vitamin D once when we lived in Portland, Oregon for three years. And I was like, oh yeah, there's no sun here. But other than that, I've never had anything come out of range ever in, in 20 years. So I'm- I haven't had a single thing out of range, thankfully, since I've been vegan. So, yeah. And as a matter of fact, some of, well, the markers that improve the cholesterol, mm-hmm. I, my higher cholesterol, my higher cholesterol, excuse me, my good cholesterol is higher. My bad cholesterol is lower. Mm-hmm. So not to say that makes me immune to heart disease. Right. However, it's definitely in a lower likelihood of it. Right. That is a big myth that if you do go vegan, suddenly you are just absolutely bulletproof to anything bad that could happen to you. And obviously that's not true either. There are vegans out there who do Uh, get sick, just like there are non-vegans out there who get sick. Sometimes illnesses are 
sometimes illnesses can be genetic and they are, you have to work with those not great genetics to fix them. So that's just something I always like to point out because some people think that just going vegan is going to fix every health problem that they have like very quickly. Mm -hmm. And when their health problems are not gone in six months, so vegan diet didn't work, I'm out (laughs) and they just go back. So I think it's incredibly helpful, but it's also, it's not magic. And that's a really good point you're making, Danny. Diet and going plant-based is an incredible tool and puzzle piece in your all over health and wellness journey. And it's one of the big pillars in nutrition, sleep exercise, one of the things that you want to check first, and then you go further. We got to keep in mind, though, that when we're dealing with serious health issues or chronic health issues, that those haven't come overnight. Sometimes they've been years or decades in the making. So it'll also take your body a little bit longer to readjust and heal, depending on what it is, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, And you mentioned something interesting, Danny, with the vitamin D, of course, what is really fascinating about that is that actually the vast majority of us is vitamin D deficient, and it doesn't even necessarily have to do with if you get enough sun exposure. Now, sun exposure is excellent for a lot of different reasons, but I have actually a friend, she spends, she lives in California, she'll spend four hours or more in a bikini in her garden year round. She was actually thinking her family was vitamin D3 deficient, made them take a blood test. She went with them to accompany them. And it turned out she was super deficient. She was so surprised because again, her natural sunlight exposure was very high compared to probably 99% of the rest of human beings of this planet. Uh, So it's always good. It's something that's good to check. And she's, by the way, not a vegan. So it's always, if you can get your, get, get tested, know what's happening in your body and uh, go from there. It really gives you a good plan. Um, yeah, we do always recommend that people are always like, what supplements should I take? And we're like, slow down. Before you even consider taking su- supplements, you should get your, you should get a blood draw and get everything checked mm-hmm. out. Because if you don't need to be supplementing with something, sometimes taking a supplement that you don't need can do more harm than good. Get it checked out. And like you said, some people just don't uh, synthesize things like vitamin D or some people just lack intrinsic factor. And it doesn't matter how much vitamin B12 they take. It's not going to, it's not going to stick because they Mm. lack an intrinsic factor. So yeah, blood tests, we are big fans. And I know that's not accessible to everybody, but I think that if it is accessible to somebody, like it's a very good idea to get that done at least once a year. Yes. And I think these kinds of things are going to become more and more accessible. I've been talking to some really interesting people who were speaking about what they see in the near future for healthcare. And we're going to have a much, much better handle individually on what's going on with our bodies via wearables, via changes also in the health system, where also the insurances will want us to take certain tests because in the long run, it's going to save them a lot of money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. We also got the 23andMe DNA test done last year. And that was really cool. And I was, my wheels were spinning about, oh, I wonder what other things they could be checking for that could really change the future of the way we individualize health treatments. I just think it's super, super cool. I love all that science nerdy mm-hmm. data. Me too. I'm a total nerd and geek with that. I love it. And it's just helpful. It gives you kind of a, like a map where to go also gives you a feeling of having a little bit more control now that may not be quite accurate, but it's a good feeling nevertheless. 
It's just good to know. Just yeah. some good stuff to know. It is. <laughs> and we spoke about uh, just a few minutes ago how everything is interconnected. And I'd like to know from you how you both think your vegan values impact other areas of your life, for example, relationships or your sense of purpose. That's an really good open-ended question. I think that if I had to get specific with it, it helps me with my relationships with others. Because when I don't understand someone's point of view, I'm more willing to listen. When I see someone hurting for whatever the reason, health-wise, I feel like if I can be a supportive person with the right resources and knowledge, that I can be there for them. And in general, I think I started off being a little angrier at humanity and I took that out on. <laughs> and so there's a little bit of, I have to do a little bit of kissing and making up in that way to people, just through the way that I, my behavior in general in society. So there's that. So I have that personal goal, but then also just in general to be compassionate towards other humans because because when we say that, there's that I don't see this as food. That's that was an animal and we took its life. And there's no reason for me to be angry at someone else who didn't understand while they're consuming animal products. So yeah. I think for me it was like going vegan was was a big first step and almost waking up and making more conscious choices about everything. It was the first, we do so many things automatically. And especially like the way you were raised, why do you do it this way? Because I've always done it this mm -hmm. way. Well, that's just how we grow up. And when I did go vegan, almost everything that I started to do, I would question like, why do we do it this way? Do I want to keep doing it this way from the way I supported certain businesses or what I was buying and the supply chain that it came from was this something I wanted to be a part of. I didn't think of any of that stuff before, but it's hard once you open that up. Oh, here's where my food really comes from. Yikes. I don't know if I want to do that. Then you start thinking about all of the other things in your life. And do you really want to participate in that or not? And it just, it's a cascade of hopefully making better choices. And that's what it did for me. Yes, better choices. And it's so interesting, if I think about how I live, I used to eat so much meat. I've never had a problem with the flavor of meat or dairy. A lot of my friends who are also uh, vegan, plant-based, some did go, ugh, just thinking of the texture and flavor of meat. I've never had that. I always loved it. It's how I grew up. So my reasons for going vegan were also ethical and health-based. Those were the main drivers. And it's interesting how we have certain, we're just conditioned to think about ourselves in certain ways. For example, recently I was at a, a family dinner here in South Carolina, a wonderful family, the uh, family of my husband's. And we're sitting at dinner and the one of my sisters-in-law started talking about how it's so wonderful. Everybody at the table is a, an animal lover because we all have, we have dogs and pets and love them. And I was just thinking to myself, it was not the right time to bring it up. It would have not been nice and kind, but I was mm. just thinking to myself, it's interesting because, and I also, I always have thought of myself as an animal lover. Also back in the days when I was eating tons of meat and even in my early twenties, when I'd wear fur or stuff like that, I just never connected the dots that I love some animals, my pets but I don't extend that uh, caring and compassion to all animals. I didn't back right. mm -hmm. 
Yet at the same time, I would have definitely said I love animals, even though that at that point in my life definitely did not encompass the animals I ate or wore. It's, it's just interesting how these layers of cultural conditioning, they slowly peel off you once you start connecting the dots. Yeah. And it's, I, we've been in that same situation ourselves. We have people in our lives who are animal lovers, but they dedicate their lives to caring for stray cats and dogs. And if they find a hurt rabbit in their yard, they're going to help it. Like they truly do love animals, Yeah. but there is a disconnect when mm -hmm. it comes to the animals that are on their plate. And I guarantee you, if these particular people were standing in the room, when these animals were processed or slaughtered or however you want to put it, they would not want to part. They would not want to be a part of that, mm -hmm. but it's just, there, there's a disconnect. And I think that it's just because it's so painful. It's so painful to actually make that connection. It's, you can't unring that bell once you've done it. I don't hold it against people if they're not there yet. I just try to keep being a good resource and being a good example. And eventually they do usually, not always, but usually do make some steps that make some changes. And I think that what we need, I heard this quote once, and I don't know where it came from, but it's so good. We need 50% of the world doing veganism imperfectly, not 1% doing it perfectly. Oh, that's so, a fantastic quote. I haven't heard that one before. That's really great. Yeah, that would make such a, like 1% of people being perfect. Okay, that's cool. But that's not moving the needle. But 50% yeah. of people who are trying to be more plant-based, that would change the world. So I just try to remember that when I'm in those situations. I'm with you 100%, Danny. And uh, mm -hmm. It's also always good to remember I'm, I have friends who, which is wonderful. They grew up vegan or vegetarian and had a very early understanding of how all these things are connected because they were raised in families that were very aware and ahead of the times. I was not in a sense that also gives me a little bit of a better understanding and compassion because I've been there myself in the past. And so I try to remind myself of that constantly as well, because in this way, I'm better able to support and serve those who do have questions, who do have a curiosity and who want to make some changes. So I can come from a place of love instead of judgment. Yeah. And especially like you said, you always enjoyed the taste of meat. That's most mm -hmm. people don't get me wrong. There are, if, if I saw like a big bloody steak now, I'd be like, when I was a kid, I loved chicken nuggets and chicken tenders and stuff like that. People love the way that stuff tastes. It reminds them of their youth. It reminds mm -hmm. them of their holidays and their traditions and their families. So we are so lucky that there are vegan versions of these foods now. Mm -hmm. Like no one's going to go and say, oh, this Beyond Burger is health food. Nobody's going to say that, but is it healthier? Absolutely. Is it better for the planet? Yes. Is it better for the animals? Totally. And does it taste just as good? I think so. So I think these are amazing foods for people who have been like weirded out by the idea of veganism or like this idea you have to eat salads forever. There are foods out there that are really tasty and taste like the foods that you already love. And again, it's just, you're moving down the spectrum when you try those things. So <laughs> I'm also really excited. I read an article today about the future futurists were predicting how do we how will we live in a decade from now, decades from now, whether it's work, 
how we commute and travel, what we eat, and the advances that are going to be made with the lab-grown meat, mm-hmm. uh, which a lot of people, for example, in my the country of my birth, Germany, people are very like, ooh, ah, frankenfood. But where I'm just, I'm, I personally, if I once this becomes scalable and it truly comes from cultures that have just been growing and growing and you don't even use an animal anymore, where at the beginning you extracted some cells from an animal, then it just gets grown under controlled and clean conditions. I would definitely buy that. I'm very curious. I don't think I'd ever reintegrate it into my diet, even if it minus the animal cruelty and minus the environmental impact, because I just feel so good and so much mm-hmm. better plant-based, but I, maybe I would have it once a month as a treat. Mm-hmm. Like I'm now having the beyond uh, sausages or uh, the burgers as a treat. And, and I think for a large part of humanity, once this really gets up to scale, it's can compete price-wise, and it can be made very transparent and communicated effectively that this is really a clean source, much better, cleaner, safer, then this will be a good alternative for a lot of people on top of the plant-based alternatives. And so we, we live in interesting times. I think we're going to see a lot of change. I think so. I don't think we have a choice, right? No. That's the thing. Like we don't even have... We cannot keep eating this way indefinitely. So I know I I feel the same way as you. I don't know if I could bring myself to try it because there's this ice cream out right now. I forget what it's called, but it's really dairy, but there's no animals involved. So it's like a lab grown meat, but it's like a lab Arctic something. It's vegan, but it's got dairy in it. And everyone's like, Danny, what do you think about this? And I'm like, well, ethically okay, go for it. That's ethically, I'm, I'm down. But then they're like, well, are you going to try it? And I'm like, Ooh, no, <laughs> getting, getting dairy out of my life was one of the best things I ever did for my health. Yes. You know what? I will try it. But even yeah. if it tastes super delicious, I won't integrate into my diet because dairy has, in retrospect, when I was a teenager in my early 20s, I had acne, cystic acne, I had all kinds of skin problems. And dairy just blows me up. Mm-hmm. It just like it, uh, so it's definitely not something I right. will reintegrate into my diet, but I'll try it out of curiosity to see how far they've come. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's, and I just uh, I think it could change everything. I think it could change the environmental footprint of it is so much smaller. And I'm curious to see if it's going to have dietary cholesterol in it or not, because that's no. one of the main benefits of going vegan is there's no more dietary cholesterol. So I'm curious if the lab grown meat is going to have dietary cholesterol, but. On the whole, and I know that there are some vegans out here who disagree with me, and that's fine, but I think it's awesome. I think it's going to be so awesome if this goes full scale and like really change the food chain. Yeah, you're not going to stop food scientists from food engineering. At this point, they have an obsession to keep going with it, so that's cool. And collectively, you can't expect everyone to be on the same page. You just can't. You can't control that. It's not a variable. It's just... Everyone's different. And while I guess in theory, it makes sense to to be a healthier person, even if not for yourself, but like for others, right? There's less of a need for you if you are healthier in some ways, but you also can't force health on people. And so if it's, if at least it's your choice to be healthy or to not to a large extent, and rather than pushing that narrative, you can at least make the most responsible choices for your carbon footprint and for the world. Agreed, Giacomo. (laughs) And to switch uh, the subject a little bit, it's all related, of course, but 
So both of you are physically in peak shape and to be in that place and be at the top of your game as a bodybuilder, it's, it's not just a physical thing. There's a lot of sacrifice and discipline required to it, grit, and that transcends into many other areas of your life. You two are also a team, you're business partners, and I'd love for the audience to learn a little bit more about that. My first question in this area is, do you see a correlation between building a business and bodybuilding? <laughs> they both are. I'm nodding like they can hear that on the podcast, but um, they both require so much discipline because unlike going into an office where you have a boss that says, hey, I need this done by three o'clock. When you are running your own business, there is nobody standing there saying, hey, get me this stuff or you're fired. Like you have to find that in you to get it done every day. And there is no, our business is very small. It's us and a few assistants. And that means we do everything. <laughs> that means we have to do everything. And it just requires so much discipline. And I have learned so much about discipline through bodybuilding and weightlifting. And I think that had I not found that much discipline in all the things you need to do to be a successful bodybuilder, I do not think that I personally would be particularly successful with our business. Like they, they go like this, the skills from one help improve the skills of the other and vice versa. So I'm very grateful for both of them. Yes. That, and that makes total sense. You basically get yourself in a habit of doing things that are not all the time really pleasant. And I think that's also a big part of being successful. You hone yourself to be in control over your actions and not be, oh, I don't feel like it. I, all these <laughs> things that, that get in between the goals that we set and goal setting is also so important. What we really want to achieve and to not have these little things coming from the side, I don't feel like it, or I don't have the time or whatever our excuses are. So being really getting into bodybuilding, I think really hones these skills. And you both also offer coaching and on your website, on your company veganproteins.com you offer courses like the 28 day overhaul what are the types of tools that you give your clients to actually go move through any of these potential blocks that they would have the easy tools are we like to empower our clients and anyone who comes to us looking for information by making sure that they learn as they go. They're taking control over their programming as opposed to saying, here's a meal plan or here's a training program, follow it. This is how this works. This is why it works. And this is what you need to do to apply it. So we use that approach with everything that we do. And rather than getting very detailed with stuff, we give them simple bite-sized pieces of information that can help them. So that is, I'd say, what our 28-day overhaul looks like in a nutshell. Someone learns how what their calorie needs are, someone learns what a sample menu looks like and finds resources to branch out from that and is encouraged to have variety and not live off of five foods. And we give them a training program and be like, this is how your training can look now. And this is what you can do to continue to make changes and challenge yourself to train harder over time. 
Yeah. The, the principles of muscle building and fat loss have not changed since the dawn of time. Like they are the same. They've always been the same. Everybody wants to convince you they have the secret. There is no secret. It's simple, but it's not easy. And that's the thing. It's very simple, but it is very difficult to implement these things into your life because they're uncomfortable. If you want to lose weight, it's uncomfortable sometimes to be like, I'm a little bit hungrier than I'd like to be right now. Or if you want to build muscle, sometimes it's like, I just don't feel like going to the gym or I'm full. I don't want to eat anymore. So we teach people First of all, the basic principles, very plain and simple as the nose on my face so that they can understand them. And then we try to teach them how to implement those strategies into their life in a sustainable way, Mm -hmm. because anybody can do a crash diet and get you looking really good for a short period of time. But it is a whole other can of worms to get somebody in shape in a way that they can sustain it forever. That is a whole different beast. And that is where we really like to keep our niche. And you just mentioned that one, one of the things is like, I'm so full, I don't want to eat anymore. But when yeah. you want to build muscle, you need to eat. Your body needs the carbs and the proteins and a whole host of other wonderful things in order to build muscles because muscles for the body are expensive, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> them. You need it. So people who think they can starve themselves and build muscle, that just won't work. And that's also something people need to realize. What are some other uh, big misconceptions about bodybuilding or vegan bodybuilding that people may have? It's not about starving yourself. And that I think was the kind of mistake that I made when I went like along my weight loss journey. I was 18. So you can write some of that off as me just being a silly kid. But I really thought, and this, I hear this from people still is I just need to see what's underneath this. They think that if they can just lose the layer of fat, I'm using quotes here, that they're going to see this sculpted physique under there. But if you have not put the time in to build those muscles and done that work, it's not there. Like you might reach your goal weight and do exactly what I did and just be like, huh, I look the exact same as before, just smaller. Like I'm just a smaller version of the same thing. That's not what I was going for. So if I could go back and do things differently, I would have put time into building muscle maybe before I even started losing weight, but certainly while I was trying to lose weight. And I think that my physique would have just been better out of the gate because yeah, once you get in that diet mindset of, I just got to lose, I just got to lose. I got to eat less. I got to move more shifting that mindset into now. Okay. Now I got to eat more and I have to watch the scale go up a little bit. That's really scary. So I think getting comfortable with that sort of mindset first is just going to, it's just going to yield better results all around if you can do it. So that is always my first recommendation because everyone wants to diet first. And I think not dieting first is much. Absolutely. Plus also it's interesting within the uh, realm of bodybuilding, there's all kinds of different things that you may want to achieve. You may want to gain muscle or you want to maintain weight or lose weight. You want to improve your metabolism. You want to tone up, but all these things are actually also tied to building muscle because once you build muscle, you'll automatically burn more calories. It's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You actually get to eat more and more. What are your, if you have, do you, have some, we know this is a really needs to be a sustainable journey and you need to have a good long-term plan, but are there some hacks that in your long careers and experience in this realm with regards to gaining muscle, whether it's exercises or certain foods or supplements, like should vegetarians and vegans take creatine or I'd love to 
yeah, share some of what you've learned and your many years of really living, eating, breathing this. Creatine is a definite yes. It's highly affordable. It's been proven safe over studies that have lasted for decades. And, and it's vegan. A lot of people think creatine yeah. monohydrate, like they have to find a special vegan one, but creatine monohydrate is always vegan. Mm -hmm. so, and while it is that. true that you could, that's okay. You <laughs> could find creatine monohydrate, you could find creatine in animal products. You still can't find enough to actually saturate your creatine stores. So even if you are an omnivore, you still should supplement with creatine. And in general, you want your stores saturated. And it means that you're ATP stores, which are what fuel you to keep training until you have to take a rest, they're going to be more full. Yeah, so it just allows you to do a little bit more work. Yeah, you could do something for 30 seconds as opposed to 10 seconds. You could imagine how much more work you could do by having saturated creatine stores that are safe. So that's an important one. When you're looking to a simple thing is to find out what you're doing right now, before you make any changes. So if you take a honest look by writing down everything that you're actually eating, like how you're eating for three days, you know how you can eat more in order to gain. Yes, you have to eat more in order to gain muscle. Everyone wants, nine, whatever, 90% of the time, people want to gain muscle and lose fat. It's yeah. the holy grail, mm -hmm. so to speak. But if you do that, you're selling yourself short. You're limiting your potential and how much muscle you can gain. I know that it's, un well, not it's for everybody. For most people, most people are uncomfortable with their body image when it's more focused on performance. But how do you get to where you want to be if you don't optimize yourself for performance? I'll take myself out of an athletic body fat range for years at a time, even though I've been doing this consistently for 10 years and I've been bodybuilding for over 25 years cumulatively. I still take myself out of an athletic body fat range because if I don't, I will not gain muscle. And that's an extreme example, but still the average lifter is should needs to do that or at the very least yeah it needs to make sure that they're eating enough to support their goals and getting in enough protein yeah. too there's this constant push pull when you're trying to build muscle and you have to gain a little you have to be watching something tick up unless you're starting from an overweight or obese situation in which case you're more likely to burn fat and build muscle at the same time but if you're already like a healthy weight and you just want to be building muscle and stay pretty lean you are going to have to watch the scale go up a little bit so it's like, be like, all right, I'm going to do this. And then you, you eat more, you lift, you see the scale go up a couple pounds, you catch yourself in the mirror and you're like, Ooh, I don't love that. I'm going to pull back a little bit. So it's this constant push and pull of, I want to build muscle. Actually, I want to be a little bit leaner. Actually, I want to build muscle. Actually, I want to be leaner. That gets you nowhere. So it's like, you have to pick a direction and commit for, I would say at least six months, even when it's uncomfortable. So I don't know if that's a hack, but here is a hack. <laughs> Uh, if you want to build muscle, you have to be getting stronger in the gym. You have to be, sometimes it's hard to look in the mirror and see if you're building muscle, but if you are getting stronger in the gym, so I absolutely recommend keeping track of what you're lifting in the gym, how many reps, how much weight, how many sets, et cetera. You want to see that go up over time. It doesn't have to be a lot. It could be like, oh, I got one more rep this week than I got last week on my squats. That's called progressive overload. Mm -hmm. And without that, you are not building muscle. So you have to make sure you have that to be building muscle. And I think that is the easiest way to make sure you're on the right path to building muscle is to just keep track of your workouts. And are they getting better? Good, great, keep going. So yeah, that's my little muscle building hack. 
And how about metabolic stress, the feel the burn type of stimulus? It, it depends actually here. So there's not a lot of research that's to support this idea of the mind muscle connection. Mm-hmm. That said, I still think it's quite valuable, actually, even though there's no data to support that this actually helps you build more muscle. But I find that if you are focusing, let's say you're doing a bicep curl, if you're really thinking about the muscles that are working while you're doing the bicep curl, your form is probably going to be better. You might be able to get an extra rep or two out. You're really concentrating on it. I do think that is helpful. But then there are some big exercises. Let's use barbell squats, for example. Sometimes I'll have a client say, I did my squats, but I didn't feel it in my quads. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, okay, send me a video of it. And they send me a video and they're perfect. And I say to them, the form on these is perfect. If you are doing them perfectly, your quads were working. Even if you didn't feel it, quote, in your quads, they were working. So filming yourself from time to make sure that your form is really good can be a really great helpful thing too. Cause sometimes it feels like you're doing something right. And then you watch a video of it and you're like, Ooh, I probably could make that better. <laughs> so that's another helpful tip too. And a lot of people on their wish list is abs. They want to have abs that show they want to have abs. And, <laughs> and I think what a lot of people don't know is that actually we do have abs that are a lot of times just covered by a little bit of uh, body fat, but, and I think one mistake that many of us made and I also used to make is that I would be very focused in the past on only strengthening one area of my abs, the rectus abdominis, which is the part that looks good, but there's so much more to the abs, right? You have all these muscles and deeper muscles from the obliques to the, I can't even name them all now, but so so with regards to abs, because that's on so many people's wish list, what are your approaches to that? If a client comes to you and I really want to focus on my abs and I don't want to bulk up. So I don't want to really do a lot of heavy exercises for the oblique but I want to keep a slim waist and really get my abs popping. What would your approach be to that? Well, this is a hard sell and it's almost oppositional to the client that you are mirroring right now with your question. But I feel it's important to explain to them that their midsection will look more narrow the more of an extreme they have, which is, again, almost oppositional what you're saying. It is because it's like you do want to build up your quads and your glutes and your lats and all the things that will give your waste the appearance that it is more now than it actually is but if you want like that six pack popping you just got to get leaner got to that is the bottom line like we have abs they are covered by a layer of fat and you do have to get leaner so yes i think you should chain like i do think people should train all parts of their abs especially the transverse abdominus which is like that corset that's on the inside so planks are a really good way to do this what a lot of people don't realize is when you're doing big compound movements like deadlift, Romanian deadlift, squats, overhead presses, you are training your abs. That is ab work because they work really hard to stabilize you there. What is not great, and I think you said you did this when you were younger, you mentioned the rectus abdominis, but I find especially women when they're younger, they do a ton of ab work at home, like floor work, all kinds of ab work. And then they get to me. And they say, you know, I want to do a bikini competition or something. Okay, cool. As we get leaner and leaner, I realize they have overdeveloped their abs and they're getting leaner everywhere. They're getting lean arms and their back is looking great. Their butt is looking great. But if they are not like actively almost sucking it in, 
It's almost like they have a little turtle shell going on in the front because they have too much, they've spent too much time building the ab muscles and not enough time building everything else. And then they're super lean, they're ripped, but they're bummed because it doesn't look the way they thought it was going to look. And what's interesting for the audience to know, if you want to go in for a bikini competition, it's actually, the requirements are actually to not have these bulging abs. So it's- You almost have no waist, almost no waist at all Mm -hmm. in a bikini competition. The poses may put you in a position where your waist looks as narrow as possible. So that's what Giacomo was saying, the illusion of this tiny waist, because people's waists can only get so small, right? We have organs in there. (laughs) But you get the illusion by building up the delts and building up the glutes and building up the back. And when you build that up around it, it can make your waist looks so, so tiny. So I'm not saying don't train your abs at all. You should train your abs. I think once a week is plenty in conjunction with a well-rounded strength training program. Mm -hmm. But the people who wake up and do 25 minutes of abs every morning might actually be putting themselves in a situation they're not super happy with at some point is what I've seen. Yeah, and it's something you just brought up, Danny, with we have organs in there. So aside from the aesthetics, what are abs, what are cores really there for is also to support these vital organs of ours. Mm -hmm. That's always something good to keep in mind that yes, while we, a lot of us want to just really look fabulous and Mm -hmm. or a bikini, it really is also about extending uh, our lifespan by helping our, by extending our health span, which Mm -hmm. people building muscle is also a key for. Um, Yeah. And staying super, super lean for long periods of time is not good for most people's health. If for, I'll use myself as an example. I only have a six pack when I'm going to compete mm-hmm. because that's not a natural thing for me to be able to maintain. And I start to have health consequences when I'm that lean for very long. My nails will get brittle. My skin will get bad. My hair will start to fall out. I need to put on a little bit more body fat to be healthy again. And I think sometimes we get confused when we see bodybuilders or competitors on stage and we think, wow, they're so healthy. But actually on that day, they're probably not very healthy. So it's, it's a balance. You have to find the right balance for you. And it might look different for you than it would look for me or for where you have enough body fat to stay healthy, but not so much that you become unhealthy, you know? Yes. And Danny, you just said it for yourself. You need a little bit more fat to feel healthy and function optimally. Also with regards to male and female, there is a difference, right? So if Mm -hmm. you embark on bodybuilding, what are some of the key things we ought to be aware of with that difference in mind? I feel like one of the key things to be aware of is one, how long it takes to prepare and two, how fast you need to get out of it because it's very easy to get addicted process as well as the end result. And it's also a little hard to think about it, even in hindsight, as far as how long it will take you to keep going. Meaning if you're looking to be a competitive bodybuilder and take it to that place, you can maybe compete for one, two, even three years in a row. But if after that, you're not giving your body a rest and you're not taking the time to grow, not only will you not look much different, if at all, you're going to risk having actual real problems like your thyroid functioning properly. For example, dieting has a shelf life. And in order to survive the sport, you need to find ways to make it a marathon, which is leading to something I was thinking of earlier in our conversation. A lot of people that are drawn to bodybuilding are border obsessed with discipline and that's helpful, but it's also harmful. Once you get to a certain place in your, down your path, you can, it could actually be detrimental to your mental health 
and to your quality of life and to your sport because you will you'll eventually see yourself outdoor if you don't find ways to be balanced because being balanced and looking for long-term gratification just doesn't feel good it's a very hard thing to wrap your head around and to experience and to embody however it's i feel the only way to make it something you can do for the rest of your life even if you're not doing it competitively but for for the differences between men and women men can get leaner than we can a, a man can step on stage in five to eight percent body fat um, and that's absolutely shredded. A woman who is absolutely shredded might be around 12% body fat. So we just have more body fat. But even at that, at 12% body fat, as an example, 90% of women are going to lose their menstrual cycle mm-hmm. at that point because we're not supposed to be there. A healthy woman is, I would say the low end of a healthy woman's body fat is probably like 18%. Mm-hmm. And the uh, higher end, they say, is 30%. I've seen like 18 to 25 was a pretty good place for most people to be like fit and healthy and look great and feel great. But once you start dropping below those numbers, it might look more like you belong on the cover of a magazine, but internally, some things can start to be going awry, which is why this is a sport of seasons, right? This is why we know you can't do it all year. You pick a couple shows. You do them in a short period of time, and then you reverse yourself back out of that position. But like Giacomo said, if you do stay there for too long, which some people do get hooked on that, and they stay there for way too long, and all kinds of nasty things can start to happen to both men and women. But I would say men's is more easily reversible because theirs is their thyroid can be affected, their testosterone will tank, but that will also come back pretty quickly. As opposed to women, we have more hormones, they shift throughout the month, your thyroid can be affected long term, and it can sometimes take a year for your cycle to get back to normal. And that's indicative of how healthy you are at that moment. So it's not something you should take lightly, mm. even though it's just accepted in the sport, because that's you know what it usually takes to get to that level but it's almost joked about and it's like the joke you should just get back to healthy as fast as you can but some people don't. what i really love about your approach both giacomo and danny your approach is that it's a holistic one and um you have a really great podcast muscles by brussels radio and you address a lot of these issues too you just mentioned it, danny you may look like you're on the cover of a magazine there's so many things that we're exposed to now social media how it affects our mental health how you've recently spoken about body dysmorphia and also the societal pressures that are upon all of us and that want to hold us to a certain standard of beauty body image these are all things that I think there's so much more pressure. I know there's so much more pressure on us nowadays than even five years ago. And if you look at the fitness industry or other industries where the way you look is really key, how can you still function in these worlds that are highly competitive, yet keep healthy mentally and physically? Like, how would you help your clients with that? I don't know. Do you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's really hard. This is our full-time job. And sometimes I can still even catch myself feeling bad about myself because I don't look like I look when I'm on stage all the time and feels bad and social media rewards you when you look Mm -hmm. that way, even if it's not the healthiest thing. And when your whole business is riding on it, 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 it just be very challenging. And sometimes I say, 
I don't want to do this. I don't want to play the social media game anymore. I'm done. And then I remember I'm not the only one going through this. Everyone is going through this and not everybody is a competitive bodybuilder. And maybe some people need to hear some of these competitive bodybuilders slash fitness models speak out about this so that they know they're not alone. Show your real body year round and how it changes and how it doesn't always look quote unquote flawless. That's not realistic, not even for some of the top athletes in the world. Mm -hmm. But people are afraid to show that side and I get nervous to show that side too. But I think that, that we just need to be more vulnerable with each other in order to help one another not fall down these kind of dangerous paths. And I know that it's the same for guys too now. And I don't, it used to be that way, but I think it is that way now. Oh yeah. It's, it's <laughs> definitely, I think in the age of information, men are a lot more vocal about body image issues and how they struggle and what the expectations are on them. And I hear about it with male clients is eventually there's enough trust there to start talking about that stuff. So body image, we haven't touched upon much of how we work with our clients with that, but there's a lot of work that can happen there. And for every person, it's different. And you don't know until you take that chance and start to talk about that stuff. Yeah. But a big part of it is just peeling back the curtain and showing people like, look, all these people that you look up to, they wake up with morning breath too. I promise <laughs> they don't wake up smelling like roses. Like everybody has their stuff. Everybody has it. And it's just about talking about it and getting it out in the open. And I think people are very ready for that right now. Oh yeah. <laughs> 100% and vulnerability and being open about these kinds of things is really, I think, helps us become even stronger. Being vulnerable in front of ourselves, being vulnerable in front of others that we trust, also being vulnerable as teacher. In the end, we're all eternal students, but especially if, if we're people who other people look up to, it's show your vulnerability, show your imperfections. It's all good. We're all humans here, all on a certain mission to, between the three of us for sure, to elevate others and elevate the world. Um, talking about mission, you are the founders of Plant Built. Tell us some about something about that mission. Plant Built started as an idea. Robert, I, and another bodybuilder, after he had done a documentary with some of his friends, there was this idea floated that was, okay, well, why don't we do a documentary on competing on stage together? And that did not pan out. But then afterwards, the torch was passed. And through a quick Facebook conversation, several bodybuilders got together and we were all like, let's do this collective thing as plant built. What did we do for three, maybe even four years in a row? We went to a sports festival in Austin, Texas, where there were multiple sports happening at the same time. And we grew to a team where we competed in five different sports, everything from powerlifting to CrossFit to kettlebell sport to Olympic weightlifting and bodybuilding. And that we did really well. And that's pretty much how we got credit in the media and amongst the mainstream fitness industry is that we represented a very small portion of the competition. However, we took home a majority of the trophies. And so we kept going with it. And it's been dormant for the past couple of years, but Obviously. yeah, but we're looking <laughs> to bring that back. And it was the, I feel like it's a perfect timing too, because we've been working with developed vegan strong, Robert, mm -hmm. Danny, myself, and a media management company. And over the years, we've branched out 
of the vegan community and went to mainstream fitness expos of all kinds. And we've put our flag. We had a stage with mics and we did food demos after the presentations and we had a booth. And through all that, we've gained a foothold and a presence in the mainstream fitness community. And next year, long story short, we're going to bring Plant Built to a sports festival that is covered with the same type of media coverage and competitors. Yeah. Should be really cool. It's going to be in Atlantic City in October, and we're hoping to uh, get some trophies for the vegans in that particular show. It's the oldest bodybuilding show in America. It's called the Mr. America, and it'll be really cool to bring Plant Built back out there after this 2020 nightmare (laughs) and uh, see what we can do now. Yes, outstanding. Please keep me posted. I'd love to reconnect also for the podcast if you're up for it to hear about your experiences. And something else I'd love to know about is, are there any practices in your life? Obviously, bodybuilding is a big one. Eating plant-based is a big one. But are there any practices that have really been instrumental in your life to elevate you physically, mentally, or spiritually that you would share with us? This is relatively new, I would say in the last six months or so, but I've recently stumbled upon the philosophy of stoicism, Mm -hmm. which I think is awesome. I stumbled across it and I was like, oh my gosh, like this is it. This is the thing that I've been like working towards. And it's a lot of things. So I'm going to very briefly summarize it here. Basically this idea of not worrying about the things that you cannot control and really only focusing on the things that you can control and letting everything else go. And it's also just about trying to be a good person, live in line with your morals and your values and reflecting on improving in all these different ways. And yeah, if that sounds like something people are interested in, I I could not possibly talk about it in 60 seconds or less, but the philosophy of stoicism has been really helpful to me as of late. Fantastic. I am really into meditation. Mm -hmm. I'm not heavily into breath work. However, I believe in it and I hope I get more into it in the future. And I feel like those two things ground me as far as helping me do my mindset work because it doesn't do itself. Meditation just gives me a little bit more acceptance and a lot more awareness, which you would think would be comforting, but it's actually scary. But I feel like it's worth continuing to grow that uh, space so that I have a chance to do more mindset work and just be more present and be a better human. So that kind of stuff helps me spiritually and with my mental health. Mm, yes. And mental health is a huge thing for all of us going through that pressure cooker over the last two, nearly two years now. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing that. For people who'd like to learn more about you, connect with you, Giacomo Danny, where can they do that? The best place to reach Giacomo and myself is veganproteins.com. There's a contact button on there. You can shoot us a question. Uh, You can apply to work with us as a client. But veganproteins.com is the best place to find us. If you're looking for some free vegan resources like workouts, blogs, recipes, veganstrong.com is a fantastic resource that a whole team of vegan athletes has worked towards building the content for. And that's all up there for free. 
Cool. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us, for sharing all of your insights and for everything you do, moving the needle, helping people individually and carrying forth this plant-based mission, living by example. It's been really a pleasure to connect with you both. Thank you so much for being guests on the Superhumanize podcast. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. 